Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Optive Podcast, a podcast where John Sekatowski, Nick Gibson, and me, Andy Schmidt, will be discussing some of the hard theological and cultural topics in the Bible, bringing three different pres- perspectives from three different generations. I hope you enjoy. Also, Nick is speaking at a No Regrets conference in Brookfield, Wisconsin on February 1st. The conference theme is Uncommon, and Nick will be speaking about sexual identity. So be there, be square. It's yeah. going to be a great talk. Uh, it's going to be a good talk. It's going to be yeah. a good talk. There'll um, be 3,000 men at the conference. Gary Haugen from International Justice Mission is the headliner. It'll be great. There's, it's, a good, it's a good conference. I'll just be one of the breakouts at the main campus. There you go. Bada bing, bada boom. Okay. Um, also, if you still haven't listened to Nick's sermon, we're going to have it in the bio again. If you've listened to the first one and haven't listened to Nick's sermon, I just feel like it would be helpful to go back and do that. Uh, okay, so today we're going to be talking about the um, a couple of the pieces of armor and the full armor of God. We kind of set the base in the first podcast and talked about why, like, what, who we're fighting, why we're fighting, and some of that, like the spiritual, like the demonic and the, and the forces of evil, and all that. I'm going to reread the the passage um, from Ephesians six twelve through eighteen. Out of the NLT, uh, some consider this, I consider this the best one. Um, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you you will still be standing firm, Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Okay, so getting into the belt of truth, um, there is a you talked about like a particular particular order that Paul puts these in, and why? Why does he put the? What was the? Why did you said you have to imagine a world without pants? That's what you said in the uh, in the in the uh, <laughs> that's, sermon. That was like everybody's favorite line from the sermon. <laughs> yeah, and so why why exactly? Just a recap. Why is it important that that's the first thing that goes on? To uh, what first thing we're putting it on. Why do we have to imagine a world with no pants? Well, so what Nick talked about in the sermon is, and I think this is is right, is that the there's a certain order to these things, and the order that's in this in this passage is the order that you would actually put things on if you were preparing for battle. And so Nick's funny joke about you need to imagine a world without pants is important because you need to imagine a world without pants if you're going to understand what the importance is of putting on something like the belt of truth, um, and the importance of that is there's this kind of archaic term that is in some of the more literal Bible translations that says that you need to um, gird up your loins. And what that means is that's literally taking the front of your toga style thing and especially um, robe, robe, especially some of the like patriarchs of households would have really long robes. And in order to be able to move around quickly, without tripping over it, you would have to take the front of it, tuck it up into your belt, and then you were ready to actually move around quickly. I heard, so in the in the prodigal son, 
when I, I read through it or something, I was listening mm-hmm. to something about it. They said one of the important parts of that story was the father ran to his son. Mm-hmm. And back then they wore the robes and it wasn't common for men to run unless they, unless they put a belt on. Mm-hmm. But that's the only connection that I've made in my head. I just made that. So. Yeah. You look really, you look really undignified running in a full thobe or like longer robe. Yeah. And so if you are like a grown man, you have one of those on you like, you're kind of like picking it up like a skirt and like scurry, scurrying. It's, it's not a great look. Yeah. So yeah, it is kind of, that is, that is a key thing in the story. And it is partly because of the cultural background of clothes that older, more established men wore, but almost, almost nobody had sewn pants in the ancient world because it takes too much material. It's, it's really hot in the Middle East and almost nobody wants to wear pants. And mm-hmm. so if you're preparing for something like highly athletic, like a strong work day or a battle, there's a certain amount of like tying of stuff up to, that you have to do to get ready, especially if you're going to put armor on over what you're wearing. You're actually preparing your undergarments to take the armor you're going to put on over it. Yeah. And that's it. if you don't do that, none of your armor fits. The whole the whole system doesn't work. So it's also possible that when you gird up, quote, gird up your loins, that's basically from, you know, four, three or four inches above your knees up until above your waist. So it's like covers your waist, your groin and like your upper legs. And so that that also could include some kind of like armament that you might wear. So Romans, for example, wore a kind of like a kind of skirt like belt that had metal riveted into it that hung down to the middle of their thighs. And so that would give you some protection too. And so that would be that. Kind of, so there's a number of things that you could put in that waist area. Some people just like think of like, oh, put on a leather belt. But it was usually a little bit more involved than that. Yeah. So um, I, in my opinion, I think the the belt of truth is probably the most confusing, probably the most confusing one for, for me, especially in this time period, because everybody's got their, like this is a time of, of everybody's truth is, you know, everybody's like, my truth is right. If you believe something and if I believe something, they could be completely opposite, but everybody's truth is, is right. And so how do we figure out the, what do we know? What is the truth and what is the, the real truth? And cause all these different churches are also believing all these different truths as well. Mm-hmm. So when you hear this and you read it, you got one church saying, well, this is true. And then another church saying, this is true. What, what do we, what do we do about that as Christians? Well, I mean, the, the first point that is, that should be applied to the idea that the ar- the list of armor here is in, is in order of how a, a warrior would put them on is that this, that the being girded with the truth is first mm-hmm. and that in, there is an order to it. And this is the first thing in the order that you have to know and obey the truth. Um, what Paul, the apostle Paul means by truth in this passage is what he's laid out in the book of Ephesians, which is the gospel and its implications for a lot of things as broad as that Christ died for our sins, that through him we're adopted into faith and justified by his work and all that, all the way through to the truth of the fact that husbands should love their wives and and wives should submit their husbands and children should obey their parents and all these other specific teachings about let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth and be the body of Christ together and um, let all the walls between racial groups and ethnic groups and linguistic groups be broken down in Christ and that he's destroyed the dividing wall. All that from one one up until here and probably more than that is what Paul is referring to as mm. truth, and he's saying that we should believe it, and that girds us or prepares us to put on the rest of the armor of God. Okay. It doesn't really get, this passage doesn't really attack pl- truth pluralism. Okay. That's a different philosophical yeah. objection, but but it is fair to say that Paul would not accept that. Mm-hmm. What he, is, would, he would say there's a the specific truth that I've told you yeah. that is true in Christ, in the gospel, and it is not 
variable. Like it's, it's not sliding around you. There isn't, there isn't your truth and my truth. We could have different ways we conceptualize it that aren't exactly the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, no human being is going to think of the same thing exactly the same way, but the root of what propositions are in fact true. Paul, Paul was not a relativist and there's no evidence that any biblical author was a relativist in any meaningful sense. So how do we, um, how do we trust our, so this might be talking more about what you, what you were just talking about, but how can we trust our uh, our interpretations of the of the truth? Because you said it comes from the truth of Ephesians, but I've heard people talk about Ephesians in a totally different way than you talk about Ephesians, and or than any they everybody all it just feels like in the culture today, all these different pastors and all these different people and all these different scholars all interpret everything differently and then you you get into these like little factions this person believes this this person believes this mm-hmm. and you name it after somebody and then mm-hmm. how how can you trust in in um how can you trust in your interpretations or should you even be trusting in your own t- interpretations how do you go about that how do you deal with that yeah, I mean, so th- that's a, that's obviously a really, really big question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. right, that's so, that's a question that could create a podcast in itself. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, sure. that there's a whole realm of talking about that, and it's called, in philosophy, it's called epistemology. How do you know stuff that you think you know? Mm-hmm. And in theology, or like if you go to seminary, it would be called hermeneutics, which is the science of interpreting things and trying to do it the best you can, right? Mm-hmm. And um, there are lots of different, ways people say you can and should do that in different ways they think you can protect yourself from error in different ways that you can try to be creative without being ridiculous and um that is kind of a big science and i spent a few years of my life trying to study it so but i think that there's a couple things you can say one is that it is good not to be arrogant in relationship to people who've gone before you so i I think that tradition is very can be very helpful in this reading what other people have written, looking what other people have said over through the generations, especially more than a full death generation in your past. Like I like to read people from the very beginning of the church all the way through mm-hmm. to be like, okay, are we on the same page here? What did somebody 500 years ago who didn't have all the same prejudices right. that I have right now think? Right. I think yeah. that's helpful. I think secondly, just, just recognizing that you, it's not your interpretation, right? It's you are interpreting the text. The text says something. I, th- I think, I, I think just recognizing that, the reason we all write things is not so that other people can interpret them however they want, but we're trying to communicate. We're trying to say something that's definite. And the job of a listener is to figure out what the author is saying in the text that they've created. Mm-hmm. And so that's sometimes called authorial intent or text-centered interpretation. Mm-hmm. And what you're trying to do is try to figure out what did the person writing this say, right? Because if you're the kind of person that when somebody says something, you just make it mean whatever you want, that's called being an idiot, like or a jerk. Like yeah. it's like you're you're intentionally twisting the words of other people or you're being so selfish that only what you want them to say is what they can say. Mm-hmm. And especially when you're interacting with a text that purports to be the word of God. The the Bible presents itself as the word of God written. And so if you don't think that the word of God written is going to contradict you and say things you don't want it to say all the time, then you, you just you should be doing something else. You know, go go get a hot beverage or something because like you're not ready to grapple with texts like the Bible in dealing with things like reading God's word because it's going to contradict you. And so if you think you can interpret however you want, you're just sadly mistaken. It's it's a kind of human delusion to think that the reader is the center of what's happening rather than the speaker. Mm-hmm. And none of us would allow that kind of 
way of thinking if we are talking to someone. Like if we right. say something to someone, they're like, right. well, you meant this. And right. It's clearly not what you meant. Right. You wouldn't be like, well, you know, I put a text out there in the world. You responded to it. Like mm-hmm. you wouldn't you'd be like, you're twisting my words is what you'd say. Mm-hmm. And, and if you wrote something down and somebody said you said something you didn't say, you would say, you're twisting my words. You wouldn't say, I put a text out in the world and then you're just responding to it as a reader. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the, t- the Bible is a text that was put out in the world by a human author with a divine author behind it. And we're supposed to read what it means. So I think just getting those two things right, saying, recognizing that the text says something and you're supposed to figure out what it is saying mm-hmm. and knowing that it is going to contradict you. So what you want it to say is not relevant. And then third, having some attentiveness to who else is interpreting this text together. So the history of the church and also other people who actually are good at it. That's one of the reasons why we have pastors and pastors get theological educations so that you can bounce off your pastor and be like, hey, I read this. This is what I think it means. Is that right? And they can be like, yeah, that's great. You got it right there. Or they'd be like, no, mm-hmm. no. And, and, and I think it's important to remember that interpreting the Bible and interpreting texts in general is a skill like anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can be terrible at it and you can get better at it. And most churches have courses on it. We're going to have, we're going to have a course for our staff here pretty soon at high point. So you can learn how to interpret the Bible and learn how to interpret text, And it's a skill that you can grow in. And if you're too lazy to do it, you should at least realize you're no good at it and that you're lazy and you should listen. Then you need to find somebody who's not lazy, who's really good at it, and listen to them because that's the next best option. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is also on that same uh, topic, I guess. We're kind of kind of off the topic of the the armor, but just real quick, um, it's not going to be real quick. Yeah, uh, this is like th- I mean, this. This topic is very large, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's right. There has been like so much ink spilled about this particular topic. Yeah, I like the 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 succinct critique of postmodernism. That was nice. Um, yeah, it's just it doesn't work in real life. Mm-hmm. Like it's great. It's great theory. And there's some truth to it. I mean, there is real truth to to some postmodern poststructuralist. I mean, they come up with a new name for it like every other week mm-hmm. to right. be like. Um, there's more going on than what people write and say, which is totally right. true, right. right? That's one of the reasons why we look in historical context and some of those other things. But the idea that writing and listening doesn't work directly, mm-hmm. I think is false. Right. And the hist- what's it, what, what evangelicals use what's sometimes called the historical critical, historical grammatical interpretation of scripture, which is like, what did those words mean in that time? Right. in that structure and what is the historical context and when you put those together that's the best environmental context to figure out what the heck this is saying mm-hmm. but but honestly so much of the bible it's not really that hard to interpret right especially the parts that we naturally read for for help like the gospels and the epistles like mo- like most of those if you get a little historical context you can get 85 percent of what they mean when normal people who actually reading the bible get in trouble it's when they're trying to pretend like they're Bible scholars mm-hmm. and they're trying to come up with creative, sexy things to say so that they sound intelligent yeah. rather than saying, it sounds like God doesn't want me to have sex with whoever I feel like. Mm-hmm. Like, if, like no one can read first Corinthians and not understand that. Yeah. And if you obeyed that much, you'd be, you'd be doing great. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I, I just think it's important to, to have some common sense about it right. and, and not pretend something's true about the text of the Bible that you would never accept in a conversation, for example, mm-hmm. about words. So, but yeah, this, this is this is like yeah. something that you, so you've said this many times of you just need to admit that you know the things you know. And I remember early on, early on in my faith journey, I heard a, um, a message from Mark Driscoll yeah. where he was talking about, uh, this is when I was kind of in the midst of trying to very early on 
in after I was a Christian, I was trying to figure out, okay, is Calvinism or Arminianism correct? And, you know, assuming that that was the, that was the dichotomy, was only the one question. of those, those were the, the, right. Those are the only two possible answers. Yeah. Not a helpful way to think about it. But, um, I remember as I was in the midst of this, I, um, read, or I listened to this message by Mark Driscoll where he was talking about, no, you don't actually need to know more stuff. You just need to be obedient to the stuff that you already know. Yeah. And that was a very, a very helpful thing to receive as a, yeah, as the a desire to acquire more knowledge can be an incredible wickedness and people don't realize that they think that like if you want to know more that's always good but like there is a like a pissy little attitude of like well i'm just i'm just curious i just kind of want to know more almost like a kid who like a parent tells them what to do and then they start Mm -hmm. questioning them right instead of just doing what they were told to do by a right authority Mm -hmm. sometimes i've seen like with more knowledge comes like pride easily Mm-hmm. Because people are, uh, I just know more than you, and I'm better than you, and and that's like the yeah. easiest thing to. Yeah, I mean, there's a pithy little phrase, say statement in the Bible that that love, that that knowledge puffs up and love mm-hmm. builds up, mm-hmm. and it, I mean, it's not true that uh, it, the, the point of that text is not that every bit of knowledge puffs people up, right. but the tendency mm-hmm. towards just like I'm acquiring knowledge, right, is that it puffs people up. But probably just look at every any any college student right now, right? Like mm-hmm. it, when when you go and you like. You're living in a knowledge gaining place and you're not really required to obey much. Mm-hmm. Like that's just not what you're really called to other than to do your assignments. And so you really do whatever you want. And then you're, you're hearing these people tell you all this knowledge and you're like, I'm getting all this knowledge. I'm really mm-hmm. smart, right. but you're not really like, you're not living in the real world. Right. And, and you're not forced to love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. That's not the main focus of your life. What, what normally happens is people get puffed up and get really arrogant. And right. that, I mean, that's why they call second-year students sophomores. Right. Because they've heard one year of knowledge and they think they know stuff and mm-hmm. they, they don't. And they think that they're brilliant and they're act, they usually act like idiots. They, they act really immaturely. And so, but it's not like, well, college students are dumb. Like that's, that's, hu- that's a mark of humanity. The reason why that happens to college students is because the environment that they're in. Right. They're getting all this knowledge, but they're usually not clamped down to being forced to love their neighbor. Mm-hmm. And so it's an environment that creates arrogance. Yeah. But any life can be like that, mm-hmm. right? And and especially when you get a society of people who do knowledge-based jobs and mm-hmm. they don't deal with hard people and they don't deal with interpersonal difficult situations, they're not they're not forced to encourage and love people. Mm-hmm. It tends to create a fairly know-it-all kind of population and it's it's not really helpful for love and for growth it feels like when when you try to uh search for knowledge in a healthy way that uh it's like what i've experienced is that i i start to realize a like how stupid i am and b that i can't really like like when we talked about in in the trinity podcast that just the existence of god is an insanely complex uh, topic and the more that you try to figure out, uh, especially about God, it feels like you just aren't getting anywhere sometimes because he's so complex. And so it's kind of humbling as well. Um, if you're searching for true knowledge, that's kind of what I've experienced. Yeah. If searching for true knowledge means knowing what God knows and being God yourself, then yeah, the <laughs> more you really learn, yeah. the more depressing it is because the further you're getting from your goal, because you realize for everything you learn, there's 50 more things you don't know. But if the goal is meaningful, actionable knowledge that you can use to love others and the humbling of your arrogant soul, then everything you learn mm-hmm. is incredible Yeah. because anything you learn that's real, that's true, even if it shows you that you're an idiot, you're still like, well, I can do this. I can take this truth and I can do it. Mm-hmm. And that's what pleases God. And you, it also increases your humility, which is your life. 
right? So and it's important to recognize that what God is looking for, it says in Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 66, where he says he's looking for somebody who's humble in heart and trembles at his word. He's not looking for a know-it-all. He's not looking for mm-hmm. the smartest guy in the jungle. He's, I mean, he's looking for people who tremble at his word and are humble at heart. And he says that's where his dwelling place is. Mm-hmm. And we just, we go over that so fast. We think, oh, if I know a lot of stuff, God will really use me. Mm-hmm. That's bull. I mean, God uses very like unqualified people. I mean, Nehemiah, that we're, that series we're going to do, I mean, Nehemiah was a guy who brought a cup to the king and was trustworthy enough not to spit in it or allow anybody to put poison in it. Like, like he was trustworthy enough to make sure there was nothing in the king's wine. Hmm. That's it. That's all you do as the cupbearer. But it means you are absolutely trusted. You might not be competent to do anything else, but you are 100% trustworthy. And that's what happens all the way through Nehemiah is he's not like this incredible administrator. Like at no point in the book of Nehemiah is like, well, I figured out the math for the blah, 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 blah. He basically just makes all these gut calls and he's you can't intimidate him because he has integrity and he's willing to die. Mm-hmm. And because he has 100% integrity and he's willing to die, he can come up with an integrity-based solution for everything and people will follow him. Mm-hmm. And so he's this, quote, great leader. But none of his great actions are like these technical actions. Like he's not Hannibal or he's like, he's not like some great general or something. He's just a dude who won't quit, who cares a ton, who has incredible integrity. He becomes this great leader in Israel. And God is always doing that. He's always taking these like people and doing that. Like David and Israel. Yeah. And we think it's like in our world, we think everything comes down to cleverness. And like, it is true that like you can solve some problems by thinking more about them and doing more math. That's totally true, but not the human ones Hmm. and not the ones that God is trying to fix with changing our spiritual lives right our the the creation mandate stuff of of taking dominion and subduing the earth that is the work of science and that is the work god gave us to do that we're figuring out Mm -hmm. but the work of morality and spirituality the way we should treat each other and behave that's a work of spiritual life and it has more to do with us being morally confronted our repentance humility loving other people and we usually have we usually are not applying all the knowledge we've got and there was a dictum in the medieval church, at least, where people would be stuck mentally. Hmm. And pastors would say, well, are you obeying everything you know now? Hmm. Because if you're not obeying everything that you know right now, hmm. thinking that God is going to give you greater insights, why would he do that? Right. Yeah. Because okay. it's just puffing you up. You're not doing what you have. Yeah. So obey everything that you know, and then God will give you a new insight. And I, I think that's really good yeah. advice. Yeah, I remember that was, that was really helpful to me when we were in, um, we were in a series at High Point's going through um, some of the Old Testament festivals. And one of the things you talked about was how there's this pattern in the Old Testament um, as the Israelites are taking dominion of the promised land of God kind of breaking forward in a certain area and then the Israelites having to fill in that area and then breaking open in a new area and having to fill that area. And that that is, is much of the same pattern that God uses in our lives. That So, right, that he's, yeah. he's willing to break something open but before he'll break something else open, you need to fill in the thing he's broken open. Yeah, and I think that's the best explanation for what happened in the Garden of Eden, too. Like, why, why could Satan come in and say, well, God has all this knowledge that he, he's not giving you. That he, that's, he's bad because of that. Well, what Augustine and some of the other early theologians, they were trying to make sense of this. Like, why, why was it that Adam and Eve didn't have all this knowledge? Like, why, right, what's, what gives? Like, was God holding it back? And, and the early church fathers basically said, in the knowledge of character, you have to learn things in a certain order. Mm-hmm. And the first thing you have to learn is that God can be trusted. Yeah. That's the first thing. And yeah, so the whole purpose of the, 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 the tree was you have to start with trusting God. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the, and so that's the allowing of Satan to come in and, and test them. It's like, 
are you going to trust God or are you going to trust yourself? Because everything comes down to it. You can't get, you don't get that right. No other bit of knowledge will ever matter. Right. And so the, the fathers basically said when Adam and Eve, would it, if they would have trusted God, then there would have been another lesson. Right. And so many people, they just want God to tell them all of it. And he's never going to do that. Hmm. He's going to, he's going to require you to trust him at every step. That's why we say we're saved by faith. Hmm. We grow by faith. We're sanctified by faith where everything's by faith. Not because God wants us to put away our brains. That's not what faith means. It means that in each step you have to trust and act rather than be God and look at, survey the whole thing in your infinite knowledge and be like, well, I'll see what I want to do. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, that's not our job. Our job is to do what's right based on what we know is true. Even though our knowledge might be limited, you have to put on the belt of truth Mm -hmm. first. So the belt of truth. Yeah. Going back to the belt of truth. You like that segue? That was nice. That was good. So yeah, the belt of truth then is Paul's just the, the truth is the gospel, right? That's the gospel. It would be, and it's the body the of Christian knowledge. Foundation. Okay. Yeah. And I think specifically in Ephesians, it's Ephesians. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Okay. So now, now he says to put on the breastplate of righteousness or I, in the NLT, it says the body of armor of God's righteousness. That's the, the breastplate. Um, I feel like righteousness is like confusing for me to, to think about because when I think of people as righteous, I think of them as full themselves. A lot of times, or when someone says, like, it talks about, you know, being a right, like you want to become a righteous person and a righteous man, but who would call themselves righteous? Isn't that like being just full of yourself? Isn't that pride? How do we even know what is righteousness? Yeah. So there's a reason why we have the term self-righteousness because the word, the word righteous is used in the Bible to refer to people a lot. And so if we just say, well, you can't say that, then we're actually disagreeing with huge swaths of the Bible. Um, Psalm 1 is a good example of that, right? There's, it talks about the righteous and the wicked, and it refers to them as though they are those things. Mm-hmm. And then it talks about what choices they make and how they exert faith and what they do and what they don't do. So, I, and the, other, the, the problem is, is that if you think that all righteousness is self-righteousness, one of the things that ends up happening, even though that's like an attempt to be humble, one is it's a false attempt to be humble, right? But it, 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 because you end up quitting <laughs> trying to be righteous, mm. but it also like doesn't allow for you to lay out the goal in front of you, right? The goal is godliness or righteousness. And you have to be pursuing that. And if you're, if you think that it's humble to say you could never be that, then the, then on one level you could say, well, that's kind of humble, but on another level, you're so arrogant that you, you're not pursuing the God thing God told you to pursue. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, there are a lot of false humilities that can really right. interrupt Christian life. And one of them is to think that you're too humble to pursue godliness and holiness and mm-hmm. say, God is doing something in me and like I'm growing in righteousness. In this case though, in the, with the breastplate of righteousness, I think that it is strongly related to Ephesians chapter two and the righteousness that comes by faith. Well, because you talked about in the sermon uh, that, well, so this one and the right breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, salvation. Uh, are two extremely important ones because if you take a blow to the chest or a blow to the head, you're usually going to die. Mm-hmm. And so you talked about when you and your brother would fight each other and then 
he would just like punch you and you couldn't do anything about it until you put a pillow into your shirt and then you stopped focusing on him hitting you in the chest and then you started to beat the crap out of him or, or something like that. I got my shots. Yeah. yeah, he got his shots in. So I was able to stand my ground. Yeah, yeah. You were able to stand your yeah. ground because you were it was you were guarding your your chest area. Um in some ways this passage, this verse is making a very similar argument to Romans chapter eight, where it says it, at the beginning of Romans chapter eight is for there is no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? And the, the assumption in, in Romans eight is to say that for a person who who has believed in Jesus and put allowed their sin to be put on him and received his righteousness through faith, right? What it says in chapter three in Romans that uh, righteousness apart from law has been made known, right? And that is in Christ, and so you can receive it. He says, now listen, if that's the case, no, no, matter, no matter what battle is going on inside you that's detailed in chapter 7, he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, you are justified by faith. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to say, who could separate you from the love of God? The point of that is that it puts away all those fears. Right? It says in the book of Hebrews that one of the things that Jesus did is he freed those who all their lives were slaves to the fear of death. Mm-hmm. So the fear that you're going to die. The fear that God doesn't approve of you, the fear that you're trying to fight in the army of God, but you, you're really counted as a traitor against him. All the fears that keep you from really fighting are put away in the righteousness of Christ. So by putting on the, the breastplate of righteousness, you're covering all of the vulnerabilities of your thorax. All yeah. the, 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 I mean, obviously you can still be killed by cutting the right artery outside yeah. of your thorax, but the main vitality, right, is your center Right. And so by putting on that breastplate and covering all that stuff up, you make, you make taking a mortal wound of spirit very, very hard for the enemy. And justification does that because if you believe that you're justified by faith and the enemy is like, you're worthless, you're like, well, except for that, I was worth God giving a righteousness that comes by faith through the death of Jesus. Or you're wicked, God would never love somebody as evil as you except that in my union with Christ, his righteousness is put on me, my sin is put on him, and I am received as an adopted son because I'm justified by faith. And like like all these attacks, what, what Paul later calls the fiery darts of the evil one, yeah. if it gets past your shield, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness blocks it because you're, mm. you know you're standing. You know who you are. You know that he can't just stab you. Mm. Yeah. You're safe from all that. And so it strengthens your hands and your arms and you're ready to attack. And Can you give a quick, like just definition of the word righteousness just like a a definition yeah righteousness is the state of being right with like behaving and acting so it has to do with the right standing and that right standing can come either from a credited righteousness that we talk about in christ dying for us or in an adaptive righteousness like where you actually become the thing god has declared you that we call that sanctification as god makes you increasingly righteous now it's true you're never going to be quote righteous enough to justify yourself but that's, it's the standing standing in righteousness is standing in faith, right? Like to, to understand, to mm-hmm. have faith and then you have right standing with God. And so when you just talked about if the fiery arrows get past your shield, your righteousness is still there. Like there's two, there's two layers to it, right? There's two layers to this. Like yeah, almost all, almost all armor systems are designed to be redundant. That if something fails, something else still defends you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're, and they're designed to work together. So, yeah, it, I mean, people don't wear breastplates because they're going to let people try to stab them in the stomach. They wear breastplates because if 
in a sword fight, somebody knocks your shield away. Knocks your shield like away from where you can defend yourself and they stick their sword into your stomach, your breastplate will block it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So you there's there's always these sort of redundancies built into most armor systems. Like if somebody attacks you with a sword, you're supposed you're defending with your your armor, your shield, and your sword. Mm. Those are all defensive weapons. But the other thing too is people often forget I pastors say all the time, you know, there's only one offensive weapon in this, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Yeah. That's only half true because anybody uh, that knows anything about ancient world combat with sword and the shield mm-hmm. knows that the shield is an offensive weapon too. Right, yeah. right. Many, many, many people have died from being hit in the face with a shield and watch then like, stabbed. Watch like <laughs> Narnia or like right. Lord of the Rings or something. Right, watch any done. film in which people yeah. have really studied ancient warfare and there's sword and shield fights. Mm-hmm. Uh, the One of the best ones of this is actually the movie Gladiator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's one point where he's like toast and he grabs his shield and hits a guy in the face with it and like it turns the battle. So, so if you recognize that people use their shields as offensive weapons, then you can realize why they would want to have more shields like the like a breastplate because if you swing your shield at somebody and you miss and then they come in at your, your stomach, then you've mm-hmm. got, you, you're guarded. Right. Um, but the, one of the main reasons why breastplates are important was because remember the main offensive weapon in the ancient world was not the sword. It was the spear, right? Cause spears took less metal. It was much easier to find a long stick mm-hmm. than to create a piece of metal that long. Cause right. Cause you could make four or five spears for the metal you would have to use to make one sword. So if you're trying to outfit a large group of people in the ancient world, it makes much more sense to create 300 spears than to create like 50 swords, mm-hmm. right? And so, so there's all always these spears coming in. But they were sometimes, less effective, right? They were less effective than swords. Uh, in a way, in a, like once you got close enough, once you got within five feet of somebody, like the obviously the great weakness of a spear is when somebody gets closer than the spear is designed to fight. Right. But that's really hard to do because you could choke up on a spear. You can back up. You can move to the side. There's some there's some great videos on, on YouTube of like guys fighting with like fake weapons. It's like spear versus sword, spear versus sword versus and shield spear versus. Right. And like the spear wins a lot more than mm-hmm. you would think. Really? Yeah. Because you just got to get it by and stick it into somebody. But. So why didn't Paul use the spear instead of the sword? I, well, I don't think it really fit his metaphor. I okay. think the I think the I don't think he wanted to focus on the spear. I think he was he was trying to talk. He was mainly focused on a defensive thing. Like mm-hmm. if if you're being charged, and you're taking a stand, the the standard is the main standard is you're pushing people back with your shield, and then you're going to use your sword to stab where you can. But this but but the shield and the footing and the armor is the key. And he's talking about taking your stand against the evil one. He's not really talking about us going out and killing everybody. Does that make sense? So. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I wasn't there to ask him why he included what he included. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, so then, um, all of this, all of, or I guess the, the, the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, we just talked about the sword a little bit, but it seems, it seems like they are all, um, not useless, but they're hard to use when you don't have like the right shoes. And you talked about how they had cleats on back then. And that was new news to me because I didn't know that they had cleats. That was crazy. I thought they just wore sandals. Uh, but I feel like the maybe misconception, or I don't know if it is a misconception, when you talk about the the what are they? they like the shoes of peace. Is that what they call them? Or the boots of peace? I don't know. It's the um, it's feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of fitted, peace. Okay, mm-hmm. so which is there's actually a bunch of things in there. So you talk. So in the sermon, you said that when you hear that, and when I used to hear that, all I thought about was. 
how beautiful are the feet that have the dirt on them because they're spreading the gospel or whatever that, <laughs> that verse is. Right. You know, what, what we're talking That bring good that? news. That yeah. bring good news, yeah. right? The, and you said like that might not be what it's really talking about in, in this metaphor. Yeah, I actually had a person who was marketing a evangelism campaign thing to me. I was on the phone with him yesterday and he's like, you know, I tell people that you can't do spiritual warfare unless you're sharing your faith because it says, you know, shot your feet shot with the spreading of the gospel. I don't, I mean, I, I look, I understand what he's saying. Like, I think it's true that it's hard to do spiritual warfare if you're not obeying the Lord and the Lord wants us to share our faith. Like there's a sense in which that's true, Mm -hmm. but I don't think that's what this means. So first of all, I think if you read the text carefully, it says that having your feet fitted or shod with the readiness or the preparation that comes from the gospel of peace. So what are your feet actually shod with? It's not the gospel. That's not the main operative word. The main operative word is preparedness. Your feet are Mm -hmm. fitted with the preparedness or the readiness the readiness of what the gospel of peace so like what he's saying is is the gospel produces a kind of peace and you can be pre-readied with that peace and that's what it means to have this your feet properly shod for battle does that make sense now exactly the footwear paul's referring to in this passage isn't there's no way to know that um, there's some people that think that he's referring to an Israelite soldier, others that, to Roman soldiers. I think it's most likely being that he's in a Roman prison. He's been around a lot of Roman soldiers. I think a Roman soldier is the most obvious. All people in Israel and in the ancient world at this time that he'd be writing to, um, the like he's writing with the Ephesians, right? So I, that's a Greek city. Okay. So, so within the Roman Empire, it's the second largest Roman city. So those people are going to have seen Roman soldiers at this point. And, and so obviously over time, all these armaments change, mm-hmm. right? So at this time period, when this was written, Roman soldiers who were marching to battle, I'm not sure they wore these every day, but when they marched to battle, they tended to have footwear that would lace up their calf to hold the, the sandals in place really well. They had better soles, better stitching, and they had metal like crimped in or um, riveted into their mm. shoes so that they would have more traction, which is essentially what a cleat is, right? Well, but when it, I thought, when you said that, I th- immediately thought of uh, football because okay. I, I, I was a running back and I was thinking about like, if I didn't have cleats as a running back, it would have it would have been impossible to do anything. Even right. even when it rained out and it was muddy, it was basically impossible to cut and, and do anything yeah. like that. So I mean, just imagine a football game in which you're playing a team that's significantly better than you. Yeah. And you decide to make a rule at the beginning of the game that the other team isn't going to wear cleats and you are. How confident do you feel? I feel way right? more confident. Yeah, you're like, we're going to kill these guys. Yeah. Like, their running backs aren't going to be able to cut. They're like, we're right. going to destroy them. Mm-hmm. Same thing yeah, in like rugby. Right. If, yeah. if you did a rugby scrum and one team had cleats and the other team didn't have cleats, it would be game over. Right? Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. there's no competition. It makes a huge difference. And it's, so, huh. yeah, it's so annoying when you're playing pickup football and people bring cleats. Right. Oh. You don't have cleats. <laughs> and you're like, well, guess I'm not going to cover you. Right, right. That's uh, that's also right. just like pickup football is. If you're gonna bring cleats to pickup football, you need you. You got problems. Like I don't, I don't respect that. Really, I don't. I always, that. I always wore cleats. So, sorry, but, but we, like we were at college. Well, when I, when I was at college, man, almost everybody wore them because right. okay, it was if, such if, a difference. Right, we usually had if, about fifty percent. Fifty percent of people wore them, and I just didn't have them. a pair of cleats. Yeah, dude, yeah. that's bogus. Uh, then. Yeah. Then I know. bought a pair of cleats, and then I was out of college, and I haven't used them since. Yeah, that can That's, happen. Anyways, we we can head back to the right. Uh, anyway, the so topic we're on. The, the point of so 
I think what's important is to recognize what I said in the sermon was basically this. I don't think this is mainly a reference to evangelism. I don't think that lessens the call to evangelism. Mm-hmm. And the passage in Romans 10 is about evangelism. It is about taking the gospel places. It's Well, the, Romans 10 is actually more about sending missionaries than it is about personal evangelism, but it applies, okay? Here, I think the idea is, is that if you believe the gospel, the gospel as it's been preached in the whole book of Ephesians, right? And it really enters your heart deeply. It creates a peace. Mm. And that peace really gives you footing, so to speak, mm. in the world. Like, people can't manipulate you. They can't get make you angry. They can't screw with you. They just, they're so, there is a... There's like a rootedness, there is a calm, there is a strength that comes from really having peace in your heart, the peace that comes from the gospel. And that peace has to already be there when you fight. Mm -hmm. You can't try to find that peace in the midst of the chaos. You have to be readied with it. And so I think what I think the apostle is saying is is that once once you put on the belt of truth, you believe the gospel, and then you put on the breastplate of righteousness. I am righteous in Christ. He cares about me and loves me. He counts me as his own. I'm fighting on his team. I have the authority to do this, right? Mm-hmm. Then you begin to realize that you can be at peace. Well, I think the cra- the craziest part about uh, the peace is that when most people think of uh, war or think of like armor or any of that, th- war and peace are most mostly like completely divided in most people's minds and for and for this to fight this uh war that we're in we have to we have to use peace i just think that that's kind of crazy well i mean think of any think of any of those movie scenes though where there's that moment i mean like gladiators an example of this many other movies like that where there's that moment of like the slow motion where the person is just in the zone and able to focus on what's actually happening i think that's the kind of the kind of peace that's being referred to here is it's like this this lack of anxiety this no, lack right. of right when when okay so another about football so there's tom brady um in the early part of his career i don't exactly remember when this was i believe it was tom brady or john elway one of the one of the good quarterbacks sorry that's just <laughs> you, I, don't really, I just heard this somewhere yeah so somebody <laughs> did this at one point um they, they had to like go you know 90 yards with like a minute left or two minutes left to win the game something like that some crazy thing and and there, the team was in the huddle, and the quarterback was just like looked up into the crowd, and was just super calm. And he was like, he saw some famous person. He was like, "Hey, is that so and so?" I know this is, this is Joe, yeah. this is Joe Montana. This is Joe Montana. Okay, yeah, they're and, on the they're on the twenty. They're playing the Cincinnati Bengals. They're down by four points or something like that. And they get down to the twenty yard line. Here we go. Like this is a much better version of the story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and there's like a timeout or something. And so Joe Montana's like they're talking in the huddle. He and he and he looks up and like John Candy is in the state. Yeah, the yeah. He's like, yeah. hey, there's John Candy. And right. The guys are like, yeah. And, and then like just, two seconds later, like a, a switch flips, and he's uh-huh. like, okay, here's what we're running. They run the play. He throws the pass to John Taylor. Touchdown. 49ers won the Super Bowl. There's like a calm. They talk about there's, yeah. there's some sort of calmness or or like peace in in this moment of like. You, everybody should be kind of tense, but yeah. that's what propelled them to just make the right play. And I think that it kind of applies in what you were just yeah. saying. When I was in when I was in high school, I had a I had a coach who referred to some players as finishers and other players not so much. Yeah, especially in soccer, there there were just some people that like they just had a nose for the goal and they just put the ball in the goal. And they weren't the best players. We had one player who was like, he was his foot skills were really bad, but he still played striker because. Somehow he would just kind of get the ball in the net, and it was super ugly. He was just like a, a super ugly player, but like he'd get the ball in the net. He just yeah. he just had nose for it, and it was because 
he was calm. Like he had this kind of athletic calm about him. He was playing in his own. He wasn't worried about anything. And he just saw that ball come and he'd put his foot on it and it'd go in the goal. I was a much better soccer player than him, but I played midfield because, um, I just didn't, I just didn't put the ball in the back of the net as well as him. Mm. And I think one of the things that this, that, that the piece of the gospel comes is the more peace you really find in Christ, the less you're thinking about yourself mm. and the more you're thinking about what you're doing. Because you're at peace. The less turmoil there is inside of you, the more of your concentration and focus is going outside of you. You know who you are. You know what you're doing. You know what your life means. You know all that. And so now you can be focused on your neighbor mm-hmm. and what they need and love. And you can also be focused on the attack and what's happening. And, you know, like, so like you'll get in an argument with somebody and if you're really at peace and they attack you, what, what normally happens to a person is all their concentration becomes riveted, riveted and manipulated now to the fact like, I'm being attacked. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. If you're really at peace, you'll be thinking, why did that person just attack me? They must be really be hurt. Oh, yeah. But the only way you can start having those more huh. constructive thoughts is if you're at peace. Mm-hmm. And that peace doesn't happen in that moment. That ha- that peace happens through long meditation right. and preparation of the, of the peace of the gospel. That you believe the truth, that you recognize that you're counted righteous in Christ, and that you're walking towards that righteousness in Christ. Mm-hmm. That's all settled in your heart. And you begin to actually experience the peace of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And there's that quiet focus that begins to be created. Right, which is exactly what you need before you can start to truly fight on the offensive side. Right. Where Paul, it feels like Paul lays these three out first right. to, to set the base and be like, if you don't have these three things, then it's going to be hard to, to swing the sword around and to, to actually start killing your sin and, yeah. and killing these things. Cause it, and I think there's something about lacing up your shoes that has always been that moment for people who are going into things. Like, so when I go play basketball, like we played ball this morning, there's something about like, I take my shoes off, I start putting my feet, I start lacing them up. And it, I start, there's this calm that comes over me like I'm getting ready to play. And he becomes I'm like, putting my shoes like, on. like Michael Jordan. Yeah. And he goes out it's there crazy. and <laughs> yeah. scores all the points. But I, I think that was probably true in the ancient world when people were lacing up these leather sandals and stuff mm. like that. And they're, they're put, they're shotting their feet. Like they're, there's this moment where you're literally tying the thing on yourself and you're like, I am preparing myself to do something mm-hmm. and a peace should come over you that like, I know how to do this. This is what I'm here to do. Mm-hmm. I, a warrior is what I am. And you're not, there isn't that self doubt. And that, that self doubt comes from Paul is saying preparation in the gospel of peace. It comes from believing what Christ has done to you and for you. It doesn't come from you thinking you're fantastic. And so what practices can somebody, so disciplines, John loves discipline and not just John, every believer should love discipline. I'm awful at discipline. And so what practices can a Christian have to, to be like settled in that peace? Cause when I think about myself, I'm, I feel like I can get, I have a temper and I'm not always settled. And so if I, mm-hmm. you know, so, sometimes like one little thing can just set me off. So like somebody, like you said, if somebody says something mean to me or says like, I'll just be like, okay, like, you know, insert word you. And then, and I I just get set off where I should, my mindset should be like patient and kind and all, all those, Mm -hmm. those nice things. How do you, how does somebody practice that? Or like, how does somebody become more disciplined in in that in becoming more peaceful, I guess? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think something that's really helpful is just, um, making sure like, so, I think you need to kind of set a base for yourself before you can really start to 
build on some of this stuff. So something that I found really helpful in in like being more settled in these things is just making sure that I'm doing that I'm doing the stuff every day, every morning, that I'm getting up, reading my Bible, praying, journaling, and and like really trying to in those moments actually grapple with what's being told to me, actually grapple with in my journaling, what's going on in my head, why, like looking back at the previous day or looking forward to this upcoming day and thinking, okay, what are, what are things that happened? What are things that are going to happen? How can I sort through those and how can I be obedient to, to the things that I've been learning, being told by the word and kind of pressing myself into conformity with that. So I think, um, the, but a big part of that that's just been very helpful is just doing it every day and making sure that it's happening every day and setting that consistent base of this is something I'm repeatedly returning to repeatedly spending time with. And, and, and part of that, helpful. wouldn't it be kind of having accountability people too? Cause like you, mm-hmm. you had me doing getting up at like 6am <laughs> and then making, <laughs> we, we tried, we, yeah. we tried this. So here's yeah. what we tried. We, I wake up at 6am. I had to read my Bible um, work out, make a smoothie, which I didn't do because John well, just had breakfast. Not yeah. that good. Um, and I laughed. I think I lasted like I think like I think three or four days, and then I just couldn't do it. I I just couldn't do it, and I was being held accountable. Mm-hmm. But I think that that it was helpful for for you and and Evan Evan Degler. Yeah. Shout out Evan Degler for you guys to be texting me all the time and doing mm-hmm. and doing that, fighting this battle with me and continuing to do that, even though I haven't been good at that. Uh, but I, th- I think one of the things to think about though, is that he's what John's getting at is consistency. And yeah, yeah it's great right. to get up and do it early in the morning. I think that that's what most people are going to need to do, especially if you have a family and children. Mm-hmm. However, like when I was in college, it was at 11 AM every single day. Right. Like I was going to go to lunch with people from my floor at like 12, 15. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I got, I, so I was at everybody on my floor after a while, people would come into my room to interrupt me. I just point to the clock. Cause I'm sitting at my desk reading my Bible and journaling and praying and I just pointed to the clock and then I, I, then I pointed to the clock. They would know, Oh yeah, it's between 11 and 12, 10. That's right. Nick doesn't talk to people during that time. So like, I think if you just have, if you have a routine that works for you, it's fine. And so for some people it will be at night. I, I don't think it's always your, your brain is in like a different place at night. Usually yeah. so one of the reasons John does it in the morning is because there's a certain, like there's a certain slope to your concentration over the course of the day. And for almost right. everybody it's best in the morning. But I, but I think if you do it, if you're, if you're doing it and you got something that works, then do that. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a couple other things. One is, um, when I was younger, I actually, uh, I, I found every verse in the Bible that talked about humility and I memorized them hmm. and I studied and studied and studied and, and worked back and forth and put into myself what the Bible taught about humility because I, because I'm as arrogant kid. I mean, I, I'm prone to just being arrogant period. Um, and that was really big. I also read the book of Proverbs through every month. And yeah. I, th- I think that that has a calming effect. Um, just the installation of wisdom and, mm-hmm. and meditating on wisdom every day a little bit, I think has an incredible effect. And then what Tim Keller often says is you have to do commerce with your justification, meaning like co- doing commerce is like you go out and you buy and sell things, right? You're, you're going to the store, you buy this, you buy that. You're like, you're interact, you're doing this interaction. And what Keller says is like, you've got to interact with your justification. You can't just be like, well, I believed in Jesus. I'm justified. Mm-hmm. So I'm justified. No, no, you've got to be like, okay, I just yelled at that. I just yelled at my mom. Why the heck did I just yell at my mom? And mm-hmm. what, what Keller and what Reformed Theology would always say is something like, well, because you didn't believe in your justification. So you had to justify yourself. And so you 
went off on somebody. The question is, what happened? What what in what way did you just not believe in your just like why did you just behave that way? So I think post mortems on bad behavior, like when you repent, right. when you you yeah, shouldn't just be like God, I shouldn't have done that. Sorry. One of the things it's good to do is to confess what really happened. Mm-hmm. God, I did that because I I thought this when this was true, right? I didn't believe, right? I believe that like my standing as a man, or I I believe that my you know, like one, like one of the fights Lexi and I had a while back was like, we're buying a car and she wanted to spend a lot more money than me. And I was, I got really angry with her and I realized that, um, I, a good bit of my security was in my bank account. Like I, the fact, and oh. some of that was my belief that my wife stayed with me because I had the bank account that mm-hmm. because I, I could create security for her and that I thought that little of her and that, like some of my securities a man was wrapped up in the fact that I was angry that I couldn't have that security and buy this car that she wanted for her. And because she was asking me to do that for her, I felt like she was saying I wasn't good enough. Mm. And I was feeling like maybe I wasn't good enough. And I knew that that was directly related to me becoming a pastor and not having as much money as I could have made otherwise, which made me like all kinds of stuff like that were going on inside of me. And I, and it wasn't just enough for me to say, yeah, baby, I'm sorry. I snapped at you. Like my repentance had to be like, I had to repent to her. And then I told her how I was feeling and why I thought I was feeling. And then I had to pray and talk to God and say, God, I didn't just snap at my wife. I snapped at my wife because I was mad at you for calling me into ministry because my security is really in my bank account because I want to be able to buy whatever I want for my wife because I think that she won't stay with me if I don't. Mm. Right. Like I, I don't believe that I'm justified in Christ. I believe that all these other things. I feel like the root to fruit or something like that. Isn't that what it's? Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe not. If you want the if you want the fruit of peace, yeah, you have to get at the root of your idolatries. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And so I think that I think that part of the spiritual one of the things is one of the reasons why spiritual disciplines don't always work is that you can read your Bible every day and you can pray every day, but if you're just like reading your Bible and you're not grappling with it in your own psychology, and if you're praying, but all you're doing in praying is you're parroting back to God with the stuff you want or the things you think you're supposed to say. You can do those spiritual disciplines and they can do virtually nothing. They'll usually do something, but not that much. You have to actually let the Bible kind of like enter you. It has to like seep into your soul. And like, it's, it's got to cause these like moments of like, who am I? And what is this telling me? And oh my gosh, I'm a jerk. And like, if it doesn't create realizations, Mm -hmm. you're not meditating on it. You're not really thinking through what it's really saying. And you're not really reflecting on your own life. Mm -hmm. And with those are critical components of life. And if you're not doing those, then the spiritual disciplines won't do much and you won't actually experience peace. And so that's uh, when I was actually doing the the disciplines. The one thing is that I did feel like I had, when I woke up and I got those things done in the morning, instead of waking up at seven 50 to go to work at eight, I felt like I had more energy mm-hmm. and I felt like there was something natural about the routine, but right. I, I and you totally also have to go to bed on time. So you don't right, do yeah. stupid low self-control sins in the evening. Right. Yes. Which is yeah. Great. That is that, that is part of the thing that I found very helpful about disciplining myself to wake up at six Right. is then you got, go I just 10. got tired at 10. Yeah. Yeah. And then, right, and then I don't, you know, binge a couple YouTube videos for 45 minutes before yeah. going to bed, you know, and Or play bam. video games till two or get on right. porn like, or any of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. That's all. That's important. Um, so I guess we're, we're an hour in, so yeah, we should end this one. But um, 
So if you haven't subscribed, subscribe to the podcast, follow the podcast, uh, review the podcast. Yes. Share us with your friends. Share with your friends. We need the five stars um, on the podcast. And um, so, yeah, we're going to start doing the, the questions. Sorry. We're going to start doing the questions at the end of the podcast at some point. Uh, so you can send that into OptiveNetwork at gmail.com or follow our Instagram Optive Network. I think that's what it's called. We can we'll put it in the bio, and we're pu- we're gonna put Nick Sermon in the bio again, uh, and also go to the No Regrets Conference if if you want to. It's gonna be amazing. <laughs> so uh, we'll finish this off in the next podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you later. to cry or so I've been told <laughs> <laughs>